Hey everyone, welcome to the Work Friends Podcast, where we bring meaningful conversations to you. I'm Jen Brubaker, and I'm here with my co-host, work and real friend, Ainsley Stanley. This season on the podcast, we're pausing to remember and reflect. Remember the key people and events in the good and hard seasons of life, and reflect on God's goodness, provision, and grace. We'll hear from old and new friends, even some that are no longer living, about God's unchanging nature through it all. Today on the podcast, we're chatting podcast. Why do I always podcast? Today on the podcast, we're chatting with Karen Bott, who is the Staff Health and Resiliency Coordinator on the Youth for Christ Canada team. You might recognize her from our story season last year. She was on near the beginning of our our uh, whole podcast. Podcast. Our whole podcasting journey. <laughs> our whole podcasting journey. And uh, yeah, we have a great conversation about one of her dead mentors, Corey Tenboom. It's a wonderful conversation. And yeah, we're excited for you to hear it. So call someone and tell them you love them. Go for a run. Do whatever you need to do. And enjoy today's, today's episode. episode. Woo! <laughs> wow. We're really going rogue on these. Yeah. Wow. Enjoy. so excited <laughs> yes welcome again to the podcast thank you very excited to have you and I feel like our days of having to like schedule all our things on zoom are done so yeah last time I think we were zoom right so this yes, is much we nicer yeah oh feels like a lifetime ago <laughs> I know it actually does eh yeah this is so different mm. than doing it on zoom yeah oh. there's no delay that's like doing it on zoom is nice especially for people who live far away mm-hmm. but I will, I, real life doesn't have internet delays and that's just a beautiful thing. <laughs> delays can be tough. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is good. Yeah. Cool. Well, I want to start off with some fun facts, get to know you. I mean, okay. we know you, but let everybody else get a chance to know you better too. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Toronto. I grew mm-hmm. up in the West End of Toronto. We moved several times, but we always stayed within the West End. Nice. What would be your ideal day? My ideal day, um, my ideal day would be to go to the beach uh, with a friend, with a good friend, with a good book. Uh, so we would we could talk a little bit, but then if we wanted to just read, we could read um, and spend the day there. Go into the water, come out of the water. Don't stay in the water too long. So when you get too hot. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and then come out and then, I don't know, it's supposedly not healthy, but fry on a towel. <laughs> I love that. Listen to the waves. Yes. Yes. That would be my ideal day. Mm. Yes. So beach without kids, I take it. Absolutely. sounds like a Yes, quiet I'm day. sorry. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> 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 beach with kids is a completely different mm. scenario. A different experience. <laughs> yes. Mm. <laughs> if you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, who would they be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think we're talking about Corey Ten Boom. I think it'd be fascinating uh, to have dinner with her, pick her brain a little bit. Uh, Mary Magdalene. Mm. I think it would be great to talk to Mary Magdalene, ask her about her experiences with Jesus. Well, let's see. And my grandfather. Mm. It'd be great to have supper with my grandfather again. Be special. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the best place you've been to? The best place. 
I think although there were parts of it that were really hard when I went to Romania back in 2015, um, I had never traveled internationally before. I'd been to the U.S., but I'd never been never been anywhere else. So um, just seeing all of the old architecture and, and soaking into a lot of the history, um, they'd had a painful history, but people were very aware of their history, where they come from. You know, we, we crossed over, we went to Hungary for a day or two before we came back to Canada. And we were given a tour, and I was by the lady that was hosting us. And I was just amazed at, she knew so much about her country, way more history than I know about mine. Mm. But going back centuries, you know, we, we went to an, an old fort, and she would say, oh, look, those are, um, those are, are bullet, uh, bullet markings from the, the Second World War, things like that. Right. And and even her her knowledge of her country going back centuries, that that's the sort of thing that I mm-hmm. that I love. I love to hear. I, I love to know. Um, history fascinates me. Mm. Yeah. So I would say that was that was the best place I've been. Yeah. That's cool. When you go like anywhere like that overseas, like it'd be cool to look at because it's different. But to know actually what happened there before mm-hmm. you were there, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so if you could have a parallel life, we got this question from Iona because she's, we asked if you weren't doing what you were doing, what would you do? And she said, I like to ask if I had a parallel life, so I don't have to give up all the things I love in this life. <laughs> so if you had a parallel life, what would you want it to look like? Right. Um, I think if I had a parallel life, I would live by the lake. I would live, I would have lakefront property so I could I could sit on my deck every day so I could write I like writing Mm. Um, so I could write and invest in people Mm. and maybe even write a book Mm. I don't know what I don't know what topic I would write about but that idea I love I love that idea well if you write a book we will read it, and we will have you want to talk about it here on the podcast if that happens in this life also. Right. Well, Iona and I <laughs> yes, co-authored a, that's a book true. on mentoring, but mm-hmm. um, just writing something on my own someday, yeah. I would like to do that. So in a parallel life, that's what I'd be doing. Nice. Cool. Well, aside from those fun facts, tell us about yourself and what life looks like for you. Well, uh, I'm a mother. I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, um, and I am a recent, I can't believe I'm saying this in front of people, but I'm a recent great-grandmother. I know, I know. Someone said to me, you're a GG. I said, oh, all right, that sounds better than great-grandmother. <laughs> I always think of great-grandmother, you always think of someone you know, just very old, yeah. Uh, in a in a rocking chair and knitting <laughs> and I don't even know how to knit and I don't like rocking chairs. So, <laughs> um, so that's that's some of of who I am. Um, I've worked for Youth for Christ Canada. I think it's about nineteen years now. Wow! So that that's 
part of, of who I am. Uh, I love the Youth for Christ community. Um, they're they're a, a group of people that I feel um, most of them just, just get me. We think in a lot of the same ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I love the organization. And what else? I, I like to sew. I like to sew. So I have a, a creative side too. I love to sew. Um, in the last couple of years, I've gotten into quilting, mm-hmm. which does make me sound like a great grandmother. <laughs> no comment. Yeah, <laughs> I want it to. does. No, it's all right. <laughs> um, but it, just trying do making quilts with more of um, and and you know table runners and things like that. I'm starting small, but uh, things that just tap into that creative part of mm-hmm. who I am and and not traditional, always looking for for ways to create that's outside of the box. So quilting's a very traditional um, activity for a lot of people. I wasn't raised with it, but but doing something traditional but but doing it outside of the box in a way that, you know, in, in patterns and fabrics and textures and stuff that that are uh, that you wouldn't expect, mm. right? So that that jazzes me. Mm-hmm. I guess I I really I really like that. My my wheels start turning mm-hmm. when I can find the time and I can get into that space. Mm-hmm. I can get lost in it. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I didn't know that. Whenever I think of quilting, as you're you're even talking, like all these memories of when. I was little, my grandma, like my family is like a long, long conservative Mennonite. And that's very like, that's what a lot of them do. So I just remember yes. my grandma would be quilting and I would just be laying underneath the quilt, looking at the way that the light <laughs> shone through the quilt, the material, material yeah. and whatnot. And yeah, eating frozen chocolate chip cookies. Mm, so good. <laughs> <laughs> it is very methodical though, or like just like calming and yes. soothing though. So it is. yes, I haven't gotten into quilting, but maybe I'll. Maybe someday. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm so excited for today. Um, yes, we had you on the podcast. When was that? Mm. I don't know. Was it a year ago? year and a half ago? It feels like it's been a long time. It seems like yeah. it was really time. close to the beginning. Yes. 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 So go back and listen to it. Um, but today we are not going to be focusing on your life and your story, but we're going to be focusing on, um, Corey Tenboom. This is one of our dead mentor episodes. So, um, yeah, we've had conversations with Mel and Ainsley and I've chatted about kind of the importance of thinking and reflecting and looking back because there's a lot of valuable things that we can glean and learn when we do that. Um, and so when did you become interested in studying people from the past? Well, I think I've always had an interest in reading people's biographies, autobiographies. Uh, I find it way more interesting than right than reading fiction. Mm. And I think because a lot of the things that happen to people in real life, um, especially if you've actually sat down and, and wrote about your life, um, it's it's more fascinating than than something that you could make up. Mm-hmm. in your head. And so I've, I've always had an interest in that. Um, I think from the time I was a little girl, I, I enjoyed reading real life stories about people. Uh, so it's really, it's been a lifelong thing and, uh, and history as well too. I like looking at the way, uh, things were done. Uh, just that, that perspective of hindsight. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting now being older and mature and I get to say, mom, you're right, because 
Well, I was telling yeah. these girls earlier that when I learned to read, I basically told my mom that that was it and I didn't need to ever read again because I learned how to and that's, you've accomplished the skill. Stop, that's mom, works. eight. Yeah, I know. Yes. <laughs> I've peaked, I've peaked. But Move another on. thing that my mom would always get into because she very much loves history and things like that. And I always, when I was younger, I didn't like old things. I was like, I liked ultra modern houses. I didn't like old houses. I didn't like to watch old movies. I wanted to have like new things. And I did not like history because I always thought it was so boring. Um, That's changed a little bit as I've got older. But it's funny because mom would always talk to me about learning from the past. And like one of those people we learned from back in my homeschool days was Corey Ten Boom, who we're going to talk to talk about today, mm-hmm. which is exciting. So, um, yeah, before we talk about her, just tell us how did you learn about her, and why would you consider her one of your dead mentors? Well, I became a Christian when I was eighteen, and I loved to read. And I'm not sure I I probably just picked up her book at the local Christian bookstore. Uh, just out of curiosity, I, I, I don't recall knowing anything about her, and so I, I started reading the book, and I don't know if this is the the point in the podcast to talk more about that, but, but I do remember reading that book and resonating with what she had to say, although she, well, she was still alive then, uh, but. And, and obviously, I wasn't alive during the Second World War, where a lot of her experiences began. Um, but the fact that what I liked about her was the fact that uh, she was she was in her mid-50s before. I mean, she had lived a Christian life up until then and, and was faithful to, to God. Um, but what we would consider, you know, what became her worldwide ministry— didn't begin until she was in her mid-50s. She didn't have what we would consider qualifications. Mm-hmm. So I know that a lot of the, the dead mentors that that you're probably going to talk about are really amazing people. Um, they're also people that have been highly educated um, or came from a family of, of prominence. And so there was that platform that already was there to some degree. But with Corey Ten Boom, she was a watchmaker. She lived with her father and her sister. Um, her mother passed away. Her other brother and sister uh, were married and living outside of the home. Uh, but she lived in the house that where she was born. And, and she was a watchmaker, and she didn't have any special qualifications. She was qualified and called by God. And he was the one that um, he was the one that that opened things up for her, and it was as she was obedient and took steps, uh, he used her, uh, and she didn't know how he was going to use her, but he ended up using her in this huge capacity where she had influence over people worldwide. It was really incredible, mm. but she didn't start out with with qualifications or big plans. She was a working class person. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't wealthy in any way. And, uh, and, and when I was 18, I mean, I didn't have any qualifications in that sense. I, I, uh, was, 
raised working class, so there was a lot about her story, although she was so much older than I that uh, that resonated with me mm. and in, and inspired me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's let's set the stage of kind of what life looked like when she was born and when she was alive. Like what she was born in 1890s, I, I think. I think around there. Oh wow. So I'm not ago. good I'm not good with dates. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay, but like a while ago. Yes. The culture and day and age that she lived in is very different. So yes. it kind of set up the stage of what kind of context she grew up in. Well, what I loved about the book The Hiding Place was um, it it focuses on what became her worldwide ministry near the end of the book. At, she she goes right from in The Hiding Place she starts at the beginning of her life. And so then you get this picture uh, throughout the decades of, of who she was mm-hmm. and what her experience in life was. So she grew up in uh, in a small city in Holland called, um, I know I won't be pronouncing it right, but called Harlem. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was the mother of a watch repairer and watchmaker. That's what her father did. It had been, that business had been in the family. By the time she was in her mid-50s, uh, the business had been in the family for 100 years. And I found it really fascinating to read uh, the description of their home, where they lived. So they they had this, their, their home, I think, was centuries old. And so it was this uh, three stories high. It was uh, two rooms wide and one room in depth. So for that, for their home, they had three stories and six rooms. And so two of those rooms, one was for the, the actual watch repair that they would do and the other the office and then the other room was on the main floor was there where they showcased because they also sold watches. And then what was interesting is that at some point, she doesn't know when, but she describes in the book, they added on to their home. So what they did is they knocked out the rear walls of this of this really tall, tall, very narrow structure. And there was a home directly behind it, and they they added to that home. But this home was even smaller. It was also three stories high, three stories high and three rooms, so a room on each story. And what they did to connect them was they created this, um, she described it as a corkscrew mm-hmm. staircase. So it would be like a spiral staircase, and that was what connected these two these two houses together to become one home. But the funny part is that because they were two separate homes, uh, the rooms were not a level with one another. So it was like a a multi, multi split level, (laughs) right? So you would step up to go into one room and then you would maybe step down to go into another. It was, so I found that that was really interesting just trying to envision that. Uh, but but she grew up in a working class home. Her father was a devout follower of Jesus, and they they were very uh, even old fashioned for that time. Uh, she her father would um, would read the Bible every night after supper, and their lives were uh, very predictable up until the Second World War, and and she does describe. Um, well, she goes through her childhood, but then she also describes the time just leading up to the war. 
and her brothers saw uh, just inklings of, of hints of the sort of thing that was to come. But, but a lot of people weren't listening. And at the beginning of the book, uh, she describes uh, the 100th anniversary of their, of their watch-making business. And it wasn't long after that that things started to really happen where the war started to pick up and where the Nazis occupied Holland. But at that time, at that during that party, she said it was, it was the, the furthest thing from anyone's mind, and so she was just living her regular life. Although there was her brother that was seeing certain things, uh, that was noticing some things that that most people were not noticing, and she even had um, a dream that would be considered a premonition. Mm-hmm. And it was the night of uh, this party, this 100th anniversary party. She went to bed that night, and she said for some reason, uh, probably to do also with the fact that it was a 100th anniversary, so you're reflecting. But she's thinking back of these different experiences in her life, and they're, and they're standing out almost like they're in color. right? And she doesn't know why that they're so important to her at that time. And then she also has this dream, which she ended up having a few different times before she ended up going to a concentration camp later in the story with her sister. But um, it was a premonition of, of what was to come. And so then it was just a matter of trusting God. She tells a story also that, that I really loved. And, and, and this is one of the things that stood out on her the night that the night that uh, of the hundredth anniversary, when she was thinking of different things in her life, so uh, her father, she would travel with her father when she was a young girl uh, to Amsterdam, because they would set. He had a, a an astronomical clock, and then they would go to Amsterdam and they would set it to uh, the big main clock in the square. They would take the train there, and then uh, and so then he would set it so that he would take that clock back to Harlem. They would set all of the clocks in the in the shop. And and people would come in, people that really need to know. People didn't need to know the exact time for the most part, but there were some right. people that did. And so uh, people would come in and, and he would always have perfect time according to the Amsterdam clock. But there's one particular time when she was a child, uh, they were they were driving or they were going home on the train and I forget what led up to it exactly, but they were talking and and she was asking, what am I going to do if I'm ever asked to stand up for my faith in a way that, you know, I could be martyred or I could be killed or I could suffer? And this is when she was a child. And her father, they're on the train, so her father shows her a train ticket, their train ticket. And he said, when do you need this ticket? And she said, when I board the train. And he said, when you ever get to the point in your life where you're upon hard times, where you need that strength, God will give you the ticket that you need to board that train. Mm-hmm. And, and so that one night that she opens up with in the book, She's thinking about this, and she doesn't even know why. Yeah. But this is standing out to her 
uh, so clearly and just certain other events from our life. Mm -hmm. So God was preparing her uh, for what was going to, what she was going to go through over the next several years. Because she didn't go to prison right away. There was a lot of things that happened between that point and, and her ending up, you know, on the back of a, on the back of a truck heading to prison, right, with her, her father and her sister. So, you know, God prepares us. And that really stood out to me at the time, too. I remember that, that whatever it is that we need, he provides what we need at the time when we need it. And there's no point worrying about it. Well, what am I going to do if? Well, when you find yourself in that situation, he will give you what you need at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to see that, like, carry throughout the decades of her life. Yes. It's easy for us, again, to read it. Yeah. And however many pages of a book, but for her to live that, that also really struck me as I read The Hiding Place. Mm-hmm. It just kind of blows your mind a little bit. Yeah. Or a lot, a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Even that interesting feeling of like, you're like questioning, like, why is this happening to me? Or why, like, in those preparation things, or like, why am I remembering this? And she mm-hmm. doesn't know, but you like see those like, kind of settle seeds of what God is preparing and knowing ahead of time. It's cool. So tell us more. What's your story? All right. So um, I actually, so I'm trying to think of where to begin. Um, It's hard. It is. There's a lot there, right? And um, so then what happened next eventually is the Nazis occupied Holland And slowly their freedoms were taken away. You weren't allowed to have a telephone. So all telephones were were taken out. Uh, No, it was illegal to own a telephone. It was illegal to own a radio. Um, Now they had a hidden radio uh, that they would listen to. And one thing that struck me is, you know, when we're talking about premonitions about God preparing us, Corey Tembim's sister Bessie was uh, very, uh, very quiet, more introverted, very loving, kind person, but more introverted. And and when they would listen to the radio, uh, this is before they were confiscated. They would listen to the radio, and when they would hear it, Hitler would come on, uh, and would be he would would scream. Right, that's how he would communicate. Is he would scream, and her sister would, wherever she was, she would run over and she would turn it off. She couldn't, she couldn't handle listening to it. Mm-hmm. But they confiscated the radios. And so they had, um, they had a small radio that they hid under their stairs. There was a compartment under their stairs. And so um, that's sort of where it started. And then um, it became illegal for uh, young men you didn't have to be Jewish. It became illegal, or they wanted young men uh, for the factories in uh, so that they could build weapons and that sort of thing. And so it became legal for the Nazi army. The soldiers were able to just pull a young man walking down the street. He didn't have to be Jewish. He didn't. He just had to be. He just had to be there, right? And it was legal to pull him out, and um, and throw them in a truck, send them to a factory uh, in Germany or wherever they were fashioning weapons mm-hmm. uh, and make them work there. 
So one of the first people that they had was, was a young man, and he actually wrote a book about his experiences as well. A young man that his family wanted him hidden so that uh, because it wasn't safe for him to be on the street. Uh, so he was the first person. And they didn't start hiding people right away. Uh, but when they did, it was just very few people at a time. And often what they would do is they, their, their home uh, became a, a point where people might stay for a night or two and they started developing these connections in the underground. And and Corey's uh, brother and and her nephews were very involved as, in the underground as well too. So they would they they would keep people for a night or two at their home, and then through their contacts in the underground, uh, they would they would be able to get those people and these Jewish people and take them out of the country or take them to a more permanent place. But then it got to the point where, where, they, where there were too many and they couldn't find places for them. And so that's when it started to, to ramp up more. They needed ration cards for people uh, so, because, so that they could feed them because the only way that you could get food for yourself is you, would, you were allotted ration cards and even that wasn't enough food for each person. But if you have an extra six people living with you, how do you feed them? And she, uh, through her nephew, she was given connections to, uh, to a larger um, underground group. Um, and there were people that were very wealthy and people that were high in government and, and high in the police department. Uh, so she was, given, she was given access to them. And through them, she was able to, uh, able to get ration cards. And then what they also became a depot at their small at their small home for ration cards because people would go there. They would have you know hundred or more ration cards at a time, and they would pass them on to to people that needed them. So they became part of this underground system, and and they were one of many places in the city uh, that were that that provided this care. And then they got to the point, though, where they, they couldn't, they were having so many Jewish people go through or people that were working for the underground that were hiding that they had to create um, a separate place for them. So within the home, they created a separate room and they had a connection that uh, an architect uh, that went into their home and looked for the best place to fashion a secret room. And so they, they did it was in Corey's bedroom behind your closet, they created this, this room. And that's where having such an odd home structure was helpful uh, because it was harder than for them to find uh, a secret room, like when they were eventually raided. So they had this secret room. And at the time when they were arrested, they had uh, six people that were staying with them, Jewish people. And then, and they were in this, uh, when, whenever they had another thing too, is they had alarms set up in their home as well. Uh, so that, um, secret alarms, so that if there was, if they needed to alert the people that were in the home that they need to go to the secret room, uh, someone would just, they would just press this, this secret buzzer 
and then people would know, and then they would just book it, and they would go through drills to to find you know to do it as quickly as possible, and they also had a a, a phone um, then put in their room because it it, it was mainly. Corey was the one that was um, organizing all of this uh, in their home. Uh, she was the one that was that was making the connections and and going out, you know, on the the, the secret journeys that she would have to take on her bike after curfew, that sort of thing. But she was sort of the, I mean, God was the mastermind, and she gives him credit. But she was the one that was organizing all of those things. So they, so this family, right? These, these two women in their fifties and their 70 some aged father, uh, out of their home, this little working class home, what became this, this, uh, this hub of underground activity and connection. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I think what struck me was that Corey it wasn't like she planned this all, like had this one year plan where she was going to implement all these things. It just like happened one step at a time. And um, and again, seeing the way that they already lived their life before the Second World War began and before Holland was um, occupied by the Nazis and all those things, like they were already very hospitable, mm-hmm. like the rhythms and routines that they had kind of set in place of, you know, like reading scripture before their work day and after in the evening carried through as people came and went. And even with their extended new family of the um, six Jews that they were, that they had, right. Like they Mm -hmm. kept those rhythms and routines in, in place. Right. Like I think that was the one thing that really struck me was that she was just living her life and just meeting the needs of people and caring for them as they came, which is, again, hindsight looking back is like, hold up, this is real. Like we're so far removed from it that it's sometimes hard for me to like, oh yeah, like this is is real. Like she was breaking the law in like small ways, but yeah, it just blows my mind. So what happens next (laughs) with her life? With her life. So um, as you said, it, it, it grew, right? Mm-hmm, it started yeah. out with something small, helping one person, helping this young man. And then it and then it grew from there where they became this this hub of underground activity and they were they were harboring Jews. Um, talk about breaking laws. I mean they were breaking <laughs> all of the laws yeah, quite a few. that were in place <laughs> mm. uh, in in Nazi occupied mm-hmm. Holland, right? So they were I, I was okay. I, I, was, I was thinking of the word badass. I'm just gonna say it, right? That's, they were right, and yeah. and it's so incredible that these three that these three people that God used them in this way. And she was very aware that that she was being used by God, mm-hmm. and that this was not something that she was doing out of her own gifts, out of mm-hmm. her own strength, right. because she just didn't have. She, she just didn't have the the skill, right, to, to do this, right, to, to have an, run an underground mm-hmm. hub. And she would find, because she would find uh, the first time that she went to a connection uh, that could provide ration cards for them, she meant to ask for, I think it was 10 extra mm-hmm. ration cards. And they asked her, how many do you need? And she said 100. And she said, that just came out of my mouth. 
Mm. Right. So so mm. all of these all of these things were were happening right in their home. And I read a book by that was written by uh, the young man that was the first one to stay with them. And he's the one that his parents wanted him there. Uh, he became a, a part of the underground as well, too. And so they would have underground workers that would stay there, that would go back and forth because it wasn't safe for them to be at their home. And so this one young guy wrote this book, and and he described from a different perspective, it was life living in their home, mm. right? And and it was from the perspective of someone that was young and, and someone that was observing the way that they did things. And when... Corey describes how she wasn't equipped um, and how God was giving her strength. Uh, this guy wasn't a Christian when he when he mm. came in and and he eventually he ended up becoming a Christian but um, he would describe how often he and, and and Corey's nephew who was very involved in the underground they would they would worry about her because she mm-hmm. would she would forget things. And sometimes she would leave uh, like scraps of paper that would be on her person right? That with uh, the names of and, and phone numbers or names and addresses of contacts that she needed. And she would lose them right? and, and <laughs> oh, she, no. would, or she would leave them in, in obvious places because yeah. she was still working as a watch repairer as well. Right. Too. So she would leave these out. Uh, there were times that she was very... Uh, spontaneous in the moment. So so there would be a, a plan in place um, that, you know, at a certain time at night, you're going to deliver this person to this person and so on. Well, she would just spontaneously, she would change the plan, right? And then when, so all down this whole chain, I mean, everybody would be panicking and having to put these alternate plans in place. And, and she would often talk she would talk openly at times about what she was doing mm-hmm. because to her, it was God is protecting us. You know, she didn't just come out with everything. She could be very stealthy when mm-hmm. she needed to be. But just I think by nature of her personality, she was so outgoing. And whereas her father and sister were much more introverted. Mm-hmm. And so she would say these, she would come out with these things. She would talk to people. And so often uh, he would worry about her just blowing the whole thing right? yeah. because of and, and because she would say, God is protecting this work. Mm. God is the one that's leading this work. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I read that, I thought that's just that's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, because and because she does describe being a person, just being a, a, a regular person. Mm-hmm. And and he's he was affirming that. Uh, so they were just ticking along, they were doing all these very illegal and clandestine things. Mm -hmm. And they were always having to watch for people reporting on them, right? That was, that was quite a, a big fear. There were often, um, there were, there were Dutch people that lived in the city that were working with the Nazis. And so eventually one person came to her and asked her for for money and it was to they said it was to help someone else they gave her a story and she didn't a hundred percent trust them but she wasn't sure and so she she acquired that money 
from them. And then it was through that, this person was an informer, they were setting her up. So it was through that then that um, that the, the Gestapo came in to their home. And at the time, it what was a miracle is they came just sort of blasting in and for and and somehow the word got out that in the home to the the people that were hiding there get into the room someone managed to press the alarm and and they were they were gone right and the gestapo knew that there was there there were people there mm-hmm. but they couldn't find them mm-hmm. and but what happened was they arrested all of them they found they, they found the phone. And so what happened was when they were being raided, uh, word got out amongst other people in the underground that the Tamboom place was was being raided or they were planning a raid. So all of these people were phoning while the Gestapo was mm-hmm. there and they would make her answer. And she would try to answer in a way, just trying not to give anything away. And, you know, as soon as she pick up the phone, there would be people you know, just yelling into the phone, you're going to be raided, you're going to be raided, yeah. be careful. And she got numerous calls like that while they were right there. Wow. Right? And so they found the radio as well, too. So they found the radio. Um, I can't remember whether they found the ration cards. I don't think they did find the ration cards because what happened is they were all arrested. Everyone in the house was arrested. So so the the, the Jewish people were hiding. However, there were a whole bunch of people there. There was some kind of uh, prayer meeting that was happening as well, too. So there was a mix of people from the underground and a mix of people that had no idea really what was going on. So they just rounded them all up and they took them to the police station. And um, several of them were were um, were let go after a while. Uh, But Corey and her sister and her father uh, were held and. And when they were in the in the station getting ready to be interrogated, um, one of the one of the police officers said to her father, who was in her his seventies, um, "You know what, old man? We don't want to throw you in jail. Just tell us you're not going to do anything again, and you can go back home. Like you just you're just going to stop whatever it is you're up to there, and that's and and you can go home." And he said, I will never stop helping God's people. Mm-hmm. And so they said, all right, well, then you're going to suffer the consequences of your actions. So he did end up passing away. They didn't, Corey didn't find out for some time after because they divided them and they, they put them in different cells. Um, and and he was actually in the corridor of a, a prison hospital. And, and that was where he died. Um, so from that point, then, um, Corey and her sister were separated when they were in prison and she was really ill. Uh, she had, um, bronchitis or, or something like that. She was really ill. And so because she was coughing all over the place, they put her in solitary and they never told her why she didn't know why. And it was this horrible experience that she had. She didn't know where her sister was. She didn't know where her father was. She didn't know if uh, the people they were harboring uh, were safe, whether they had got out. And so that was a very difficult time, obviously. Uh, she was taken 
and uh, and interrogated. They they knew that they were harboring Jews, but they couldn't charge them with it because they didn't know. Um, the best they had, I think, were a few extra ration cards. Um, there was the illegal telephone and the illegal radio. And but they didn't know the full extent. They suspected, but they couldn't prove the full extent of what they were doing, mm-hmm. what they were up to. However, they Betsy and uh, Corey were sent to originally sent to a work camp, which was a concentration camp. Uh, but it was still within. It wasn't in Germany at that time. But they were sent to two places. So the first place they sent, they were sent to. Um, uh, there was. It was a camp. It was, they, they were working in different places. They were able to get their, their Bible through, which was, a mirac- which was miraculous yeah. that they were able to do that. So they were able to smuggle a Bible into the barracks where they were staying. And, and they were able to minister to people. And, and in the, the book, The Hiding Place, she doesn't go into great deal detail about a lot of the the deprivation that they suffered. You get a, a picture of it, but it's in other books. She has a book called Prison Letters. She has many books. I haven't read all of them, but mm. but she has a book called Prison Letters where she goes into a little more detail about some of the experiences they had in prison. But when they, they were in this prison and they were it was they were men and women, but they were separated. And and just so many horrible things that were happening. In, in that in that work camp it was unbelievable they decided to shut it down then and and they killed all of the men in the camp like there were thousands of people in this camp it's just mind-boggling they killed all of the men in the camp and there were women in that camp those were their husbands mm. their sons because you know couples or families would be arrested together often and so they just they executed all of the men, and they threw the women. They threw the women into a train, train uh, carts, uh, and and that's the, how they would transport them. And so, uh, so they ended up going then to uh, a concentration camp in Germany, and that was where her sister eventually died at that concentration camp. Um, in total, they were there. They were in prison in both places for a year. And when they were at the second place, her sister, um, who was who was always very ill, she had um, anemia, and so she she was ill all of her life, and and so it was quite a miracle that she managed to survive a year in the concentration camps. But God began giving her uh, visions about what was to come after the war, after the concentration camp, um, when they when they would leave. And Corey always assumed that it would be she and her sister would leave together because her sister was getting these visions of of what they what was they were to do after. And she would say to her sister, you and me together, right? And and but that is not what happened. So she said she did have a vision where she said to, to Corey, we're going to be out within a year. You know, by, she gave a date, by the new year, we will be out of prison. Well, yeah, her sister was out of prison, but she was in heaven. Mm. Uh, but, but Corey was 
uh, released due to a technicality. Mm -hmm. Um, The following week after she was released, they rounded up all the women her age and they executed them. Mm -hmm. So it was God's providence that that kept her. Um, And then her ministry, it, it, it was after that then that that she began, she began her ministry uh, to to the people that were, you know, post-war people, all of the people that were that were suffering. Uh, so, in her, so when she was released from prison, there are a lot of different stories that she has about what she, what she went through and how God, how she experienced God in the prison. Uh, one story I thought was really funny is her sister would say to her, in everything, give thanks. So throughout all of this, her sister maintained this forgiving spirit that had mm-hmm. to be from God because mm. it couldn't be from from anywhere else. And her sister would say to her, the Bible says, give thanks. So when they were going into this uh, this barracks, um, hundreds and hundreds of women on these these long, uh, just these long wooden slats. And I think you were allotted one blanket and just everyone jammed in together. And their first night, they realized um, they, they, something started itching. That, so the, it was infested with fleas. The whole place mm-hmm. was infested with fleas. And Corey said to her sister, how can I give thanks? I, I can, how can I give thanks for the fleas? And her sister said, we just obey what God's word said. Give thanks for the fleas. And then what happened was later on, then um, they started having uh, prayer groups within within these barracks that they were in, this one large building. And they said they started them very tentatively. They didn't know how it would go over. They had their Bible and they would just read from the Bible and they would they would share, and, and people were being comforted. And the guards never went into those barracks, because that would always be the fear at any time. The guards would, you know, someone could go in and and just, if you were doing anything they disapproved of, especially if you found a Bible, mm. I mean, you could be killed on the spot. Yeah. Uh, so, but then what they realized is that because the barracks were so flea infested, guards wouldn't go near them. They wouldn't go into that particular building at all because they were they didn't want the fleas. So it was it was just a great example. Wow. Give thanks and everything. Yeah. Right? And just the the simple faith that her sister had and mm. and how deep it was, mm. how deep it was to be able to go beyond it if when she witnessed all of these atrocities in the concentration camp Corey would be struggling uh so much and her sister would say I feel so sorry for them and mm-hmm. Corey would say yes and then but then she would realize she was talking about the guards that she felt so sorry for the guards that they were so depraved at that point that they could do those sorts of things to people. Mm-hmm. So it was she she would flip it on its head. Mm. I could go on. Yeah. I don't know. I'm talking a lot, so I didn't know whether 
you need to jump in. And we're engrossed. Okay. Are you? Okay. It's <laughs> good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just kind of mind blowing. Yeah. I don't, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Think about the reality of it, right? Like this yeah. isn't, again, this isn't just a nice story of somebody who went through hard times and they persevered and everything was okay. Right. Like that's not. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. Yeah. And their faithfulness to Jesus and all of this is, yeah. When it, the when I was reading the flea story, I'm like, I would have such a hard time with that. <laughs> and it really it causes you to think and reflect on your own life. And uh, yeah, the opportunities that you have to to kind of play out the things that they were living out during that time through an extremely difficult season. So you've already kind of touched on it a little bit, but what would be for you anyways, like the main themes or lessons that you have gleaned this far from Corey and Betsy's life? Mm -hmm. Um, I would say perseverance, Mm. God's faithfulness and in perseverance and his ability and how he walks with you through through those difficult times, no matter how hard they are. Mm -hmm. And also the power of forgiveness Mm. and that, Sometimes forgiveness can only come from him mm. and can only come with him doing it through you. You're not capable in your human form of forgiving. Mm-hmm. I and mean, there are some atrocities that we can't do it, but but he can mm-hmm. and he can and he can do that for us mm-hmm. through us. Yeah, I would say those were mm. the two lessons that I that I came away with. You mm-hmm. know, back when I first read it. And even, you know, just reading it again. I oh, Throughout the years, every once in a while, I pick up that book and I read mm-hmm. it again. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting, too, is her sister started uh, having these, uh, these dreams of what they were to do after the war. And she had a picture of, of a home, of a, of a huge home, beautiful home with high windows and gardens. And she would talk to, Gore, to Corey how people could come there and a place for people to heal after the war. And, uh, you know, everything would be green and how gardening and, and new life would help people to heal. And she, she had this, this vision about this. And, and so then what happened was her sister ended up dying uh, while she was in the camp. And but one thing that was interesting about her sister's death, and I don't know if this stood out to you reading the book, is she had been in the prison hospital, and Corey uh, really wanted to see her desperately. And in the bathroom of this prison hospital, uh, that is where they used to stack the bodies where people had died. And Corey had happened on there accidentally once before, and... So when she snuck into the hospital, there was an inmate there that was a nurse, so she worked in the hospital. And she grabbed her by the arm and she said, I want to show you something. Like, because she went to see her sister, but her sister's bed was empty. Mm-hmm. And so she said, I want to show you something. And she's taking her toward the bathroom. And, and Corey said, no, I, I don't want to see my sister there. I can't do that. She goes, no, you have to come. And so she did. And her sister was there in the pile of bodies and she she was dead 
but she looked like she was 25. Mm -hmm. She didn't have a wrinkle on her face. So she said it was like she was seeing the Betsy of heaven. God was showing that. That's... Mm. I just, I just found that really yeah, wow. touching for her. But then, uh, so Corey was released, and she had a terrible time getting back to. She was she was ill. She had um, an edema in her legs as well too. She had to sign a uh, she had to sign a document when she left, saying that she had been treated well and that she was healthy and had been fed. Uh, wow. You sign it right because <laughs> you want to yeah. get out of there, and and she lost. There was, uh, she was given a train ticket and she was given uh, some cards uh, so she could have food. Anyway, something happened. She lost everything and except for her train ticket. So she was half starved traveling throughout the country to get back to Holland. Uh, she went back to her old home because it had been, it had been left to her uh, by her father. And she just didn't know what to do. And so she because you would be, you'd be very disoriented. Yeah. And she thought, well, maybe I should just get back into underground work. And so she contacted her nephew, who was still, uh, hadn't been arrested yet, and he was in the underground. He ended up uh, dying in a concentration camp eventually, but he hadn't been arrested yet. And so he gave her a message to give to uh, one of the police officers um, and at, so she had to go to a certain department at the police station. So she was doing underground work. So she went in and she gave this message to this police officer, but she almost gave him away. She almost exposed him. And she went back home and she realized God has equipped me to do this work. He equipped me to do this work, but he's just showing me today that it is in his strength and in his power that I did it. Mm -hmm. And there's something else for me. I can't continue doing this work because that was a clear, (laughs) you need to do something else. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she was thinking of her sister's vision and she didn't know where to start with it. So she was, but she was contacted by this lady that lived, uh, that wanted to talk to her about opening up her home. So she went to see this lady, and she didn't know too much about her. Her aunt had had some connections with this lady's mother. And it was the very same, her home turned out to be the very same description of the home that Betsy described for a place for people to go to heal. So it was this large house, high windows, a lot of gardens. It was... She nailed it. And so Corey realized, well, this is my next step. So she began, um, people started coming in that were needing to heal from the war. And what she originally envisioned were people, people uh, that had been, uh, you know, traumatized from the war getting healing. But also, she also envisioned people that, were that had helped, that had collaborated with the Nazis mm-hmm. as well, because they were now pariahs in the society. They would walk down the street and people would pelt them with rocks and just really bad. So she thought that 
they could receive healing there too. But when she put the two groups together, there was, it, they weren't ready. It was too much. And so what she ended up doing was turning her home um, into a place where um, these people that had collaborated with the Nazis and needed to rebuild their lives uh, could go to be able to do that. So that was the beginning of, you know, she had a, a, a ministry of this sort that spanned 25 years. So she, um, began, she began speaking in groups because God uh, was giving her a message of, you know, persevering in faith and especially the message of forgiveness. And she ended up in the United States because when she, when she first started to preach this message, um, in Europe, it was too fresh and people weren't ready to hear it yet. So she moved to the U.S., and that was when she began doing some writing. And in the American church, they were more receptive to, to hearing that because I think they were, they were one step yeah. removed, right? Mm -hmm. There was some trauma and some, mm -hmm. some grief there and some healing that needed to happen, but it was not even close to the same extent of what mm -hmm. the people experienced in Europe. And so she, she ended up speaking around the world to different groups, and especially groups that had people that were experiencing, Christians that were experiencing persecution, because she could go in there and and and, and she could actually speak to them because mm -hmm. she had credibility, you could call yeah. it, because she'd go in there because she had suffered in a concentration camp, and even even before that, the things that, that they suffered and they saw before they were even arrested. Mm -hmm. And... And and she could, she could truly preach forgiveness, and she could truly preach um, persevering. Yeah. And and depending on God. It's quite a story. It it's. Yeah, there's not really much to you can't add to it. Yeah. Just God's yeah. grace. Wow. And just the fact that. Uh, just going back to the beginning, that this was somebody, this was a faithful follower of Jesus mm -hmm. that has, as you mentioned, those rhythms in her life that sustained her. And she was from a working class home. She didn't have degrees and, and qualifications. There's nothing wrong with those things, but but God uses everyone. And she didn't have any of those things. And she was a, a middle-aged single woman. Yeah. Who didn't have, a, that, who would have had to, in normal situation and in the culture, would have struggled to have a voice. And look at all that God accomplished in her. I, I mm -hmm. find her so inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really does cause you to pause and like look at what kind of definition you use to describe successful or whatever it Greatness. is, right? Greatness, yeah. Yeah. So as you have studied people from the past and specifically Corey, how has God's goodness and provision and grace changed? Well, I think of when I first read The Hiding Place at 18 mm -hmm. and reading The Hiding Place now, uh, 
definitely have a lot more life experience behind me, yeah. years with God, uh, times where I've really needed to persevere and where he has sustained me. Uh, I think what one of the things that stand out stands out to me is that God knows the beginning and the end, and he doesn't necessarily shield us from the really hard, terrible stuff. Uh, but he, he sustains us and he walks with us through it. She had dreams of what was ahead before she had any idea of what she was going to do and, and what part she was going to play in the, in the Dutch underground. But God knew, and he was preparing her. And we don't, we don't know what's ahead for us. The one thing we do have is we know that, that God goes with us in everything. Wow. <laughs> I just, yeah, it's like there's so much you could say, and yet almost I feel a little speechless too, just thinking. And it's not a new story to me. Like I said, I, well, I watched the movie and I read parts of the book when I was very young. Yes. Um, but just to, to sit in that and know and see, even the faithfulness of her continuing the work of the war beyond like it didn't it's not like oh okay I accomplished these things and I made it through it was this like mm -hmm. it was only the start of what God was going to use her for which is yes. wild um yeah I I would love to just ask you because this this season we've been you know learning from either people's individual stories or like in this episode the stories of people who we look at as our our dead mentors and people of the past that we can learn a great deal from um, but how would you say that God is forming you in this season? That's a good question. <laughs> um, keeping, keeping good spiritual rhythms. Mm. He's forming me right now uh, through times of, of silence and waiting on him and sitting in his presence. For me, that is what's forming me right now. It's, it's what sustains me. And, you know, I, I love reading the Bible, God's word. I love, you know, different types of spiritual practices that connect to me well. With God, but I would say for me, right now, what is 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 in most focus is just sitting before God and not having to speak, just being with Him in His presence. So, it, does that answer the question, or, or mm -hmm. does it? Okay, yeah. mm -hmm. okay. I'm just I'm just trying to think because it's like that. Um, <laughs> I I've, uh, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> I I think when I think about times of silence, they can either be really refreshing and just like, oh, he yes. knows, or it can be like, hello, yes, <laughs> like yeah. So where yeah. do you? How, where would you say you're 
Well, I know when you, times of silence, you know, people often think of, you know, nasal gazing, gazing activity, mm. right? And, and I don't, I don't have to be sitting in a place by myself. Like I can be, we live in a rural area. And so I can, and, and, and actually in front of us and behind us are, are fields. And what's great is there's never going to be anything built mm. in front of us or behind us. Mm. Uh, so we can see, we have a beautiful view of the sunset and of the sunrise in the morning. Um, just just sitting and, for me, God speaks through his creation mm-hmm. and allowing God to speak to me that way. And in that sense, I'm, I'm silent as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just watching and and praising in my heart and thanking God in my heart. Um, I suppose there are times where, you know, I'm not really hearing anything. I'm not, I'm not sensing anything, but for me, it's like a, it's like a a muscle that I've, that I've built, Mm -hmm. that I, that I look forward to those times when I can just watch a sunset or I can, I can sit on my deck and, read a bit of scripture and then reflect on it. Uh, have that have that quiet those quiet moments mm-hmm. for me where I'm not I'm not always talking to God. I'm not always asking for things. I'm not always I'm just quiet with him. Mm-hmm. Like I would be you know like you would be with a good friend that mm-hmm. you don't feel like you have to fill the space with words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes it does feel like he's right there with me, and other times it doesn't, but it's all right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thanks so much, Karen. I We have one more question that we ask everyone, and I think you know it. Um, uh, but, yeah, I think it's as we're kind of sitting in the space now after hearing about Corey's life, about hearing how you have been impacted by Corey and kind of the gospel that Corey has kind of, taught you and preached to you it's um yeah I don't know I just feel very stilled and very quiet and I don't really know how to (laughs) to wrap this up and um I think that's okay but thank you so much for joining us here today our last question that we always ask people is what is the best piece of advice you've been given did we ask you this before we did I don't even remember what I said I don't remember that question I think it was don't take yourself too seriously. Oh, that's a, that's a good one. That's yeah. a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Don't take yourself too seriously. Maybe there's something else too. I don't, no, no, I do remember that one because that was something that that Rob Hardwood told me when I first got into ministry, youth ministry. <laughs> yes. Because he said don't take yourself seriously. There will be multiple ways that you will unintentionally make a fool of yourself. <laughs> you just got to get over it. Yeah. You can't take yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's a good me. one. Actually, yeah. I can't think of a better one now. Mm-hmm. Mm. Amazing. <laughs> it's happened many times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> me too. Yeah. I would, I, th- I say this to people all the time. I said, I don't take myself too seriously because if I did, I would just die of embarrassment. <sighs> mm-hmm. You lay awake at night. (laughs) You lay awake at night thinking, oh, did I say that today? Yeah. Did I do that today? I can't believe it. I just refuse to live that way. Yeah. (laughs) Humbling moments. Yes. All around. For sure. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, it doesn't get any better, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's encouraging. That is encouraging, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much, Kara. We really appreciate you and, yeah, for joining us today in person. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for inviting me. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you too as well. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We have more amazing conversations like this coming up. You know it every single Monday. So make sure that you're checking us out every Monday. You can follow us on uh, social media, Instagram, Facebook at Just Work Friends. You can also follow and subscribe on different podcast platforms, whatever you happen to be using. And uh, yeah, until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you so much. That sounds so fake. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's right. It's genuine though. Thanks. Have a great week. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's genuine. Clearly. <laughs> you got me. I don't know. Have a great week, everyone. Toodaloo.